We've been journeying through the story of Joseph and his brothers. We have a few, a few weeks left in, uh, in this series as we tell the story uh, bit by bit. There was a famine in the land, in all the earth, that was foreseen, prophesied indeed by a dream that God had given to Pharaoh in Egypt and given an interpretation of the dream to Joseph. And the famine has now come. We're a couple of years into the famine. And Joseph's brothers back in the land of Canaan ran out of food. And it was time for them to do something about it. And because Egypt had collected grain over the previous seven years of plenty, Egypt had food. And so Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy grain. And so it comes to be that the brothers of Joseph find themselves bowing before him, indeed in fulfillment of the dreams that God had given Joseph as a teenager when he was 17 years old. But the big twist here is that they don't recognize him. So the brothers are all there, and they've bowed themselves to the ground, and they're coming to get food, but they don't know that it's Joseph, because they assume that he's dead or struggling somewhere in obscurity. They certainly don't expect him to walk and talk and look like an Egyptian and to be a governor over the entire country. And so they don't know that it's Joseph, and Joseph decides to take advantage of that fact, not cruelly, I don't think, to toy with them or, or seek vengeance, but to try to ascertain whether they've changed. It's been 22 years now since they had last seen each other, and the last time they were together, things went very, very badly, and Joseph ended up in a pit and then sold as a slave, and you know how the story goes. So he wants to see, are these guys the same violent, selfish schemers that they were 22 years ago? We've seen Joseph weep a couple of times now as he comes face to face with his brothers but tries to conceal his identity and he needs to kind of run into another room and regain composure. So we can tell that Joseph's real desire is to make himself known to them and ultimately to be reconciled to his brothers. That's his real desire. But before Joseph can reveal his true identity to his brothers and be united to his family, he has one more test for them to ensure that they've really changed. And that's what Genesis chapter 44 is all about. And it, the, the chapter leads us right up to the threshold of Joseph, we're told at the beginning of chapter 45, no longer being able to contain himself and revealing himself to his brothers. But not today. This is the last test to try to expose what is in the hearts of his brothers. Let's read verses 1 through 5 of Genesis chapter 44 as the story begins. Then he... That's Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up. 
Follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. And so the trap is set. He's feasted with the brothers. He has sent them on their way with provisions and an extra item from the house, this special silver cup of Joseph's, which is a cup, we're told multiple times, by which he practices divination. Divination being sort of a dark, magical power where, you might, where one might be said to be able to foresee the future or get in touch with a spirit or something like that. I don't think we need to assume that Joseph is actually practicing divination. I think we know enough of Joseph by this time to know that he is trusting in Yahweh. And even while he's living like an Egyptian in the kind of outward forms of things, he knows who he really is. And he trusts in the real God. So I think he kind of uses the, the illusion, you know, this disguise to his advantage here. And even emphasizing, this is the cup by which I practice divination. And it might be that the brothers would come to assume that he learns the, about the fact that they have the cup by divination. Maybe he has these magical powers, and that's how he knows that we have the cup. At any rate, he takes this silver cup, this divination cup, and has his steward place it in Benjamin's sack, the youngest brother, the one, of course, that he had sent them back to Canaan to retrieve and come back with because he wanted to ensure that Benjamin indeed was still alive and well. And so he sets up this test. And I think he envisions that, that setting up this test will lead to a very specific moment, to a very specific test to which he, which he will put the brothers to expose their true hearts. What might he find? How might they respond to this trap Will they reveal themselves to be really on the road to repentance and change, or will they show themselves to be just the same old selfish guys looking out for their own interests, even at the expense of their family members? We don't yet know as the story begins to unfold. And there's another question, I think, that just raises a little bit of tension for us. If you were reading through the story for the first time, what is Joseph really trying to do? The question, I think, is, is Joseph maybe actually looking for vengeance? Does he have retaliation on his mind? Is he hoping to trap them in something so that he can then pounce on them, right, and get his revenge upon them? And so the story continues, and the brothers will find themselves in hot water. Indeed, let's look now at verses 6 through 13 as the steward of Joseph overtakes them. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, the, what Joseph had told him to say. Why have you repaid evil with good? Don't you know that my master can practice divination? All of that. He said to him these words. And they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant. 
and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Well, the plot has unfolded precisely as Joseph expected it to. We're not told here which of the brothers is speaking. It says, they said to him, why would we do this thing? And I point that out just to to show you a contrast. When we get a little bit later into the chapter, we will have a particular brother named who takes the, the center stage, as it were. But right now, they're just in corporate collectivity here. Why would we do this, right? And they suggest, listen, if, if we're guilty of this, whoever among our, our tribe has taken this cup, he will be killed and the rest of us will be slaves to Joseph. How ironic would that be, by the way, if it were to happen that way, that the brothers who sold Joseph into slavery would end up having them as his own slaves. And I think that the boldness of this claim, listen, if you find the cup among us, kill him, and enslave us. I think the boldness of the claim tells us two things. Number one, they recognize this is a really serious crime that they've been charged with. They have taken advantage of the hospitality of a house of royalty. They've been in a governor's palace in Egypt receiving food and drink and, and provisions, and they've taken advantage of that and made a mockery of that by stealing from him if that indeed is the case. So they recognize this is something that would be punishable by death. So if you find the cup in one of our sacks, that one will be put to death, and the rest of us will be enslaved to you. But I think it also shows us that they honestly believe they'll be found innocent. They must know there's no way any one of us would have done this thing. So if you think we have it, search our sacks, right, to your heart's content, go and look through everything we have, because we're confident you won't, found it. you won't find it. You won't found it. Nice. <clears throat> and the steward says, this is interesting, he says, let it be as you say, but then he oddly recites a different arrangement than what they suggested, because they said, let the one who has it be killed, and the rest of us will return and be slaves to your master. And he says, let it be as you say, the one who found it will be slave, and the rest of you will be innocent, and presumably cleared to go home. Well, that's not quite what they suggested, But it is clearly what was in Joseph's mind and what he's communicated to the steward. No, what I want is a situation where the youngest brother is going to be on the hook and the others will have to respond somehow. So this is the test. How will the rest of the brothers respond when the youngest and newly favored brother is on the line? Will they stand up for them? For him? Will they protect him? Will they come to his aid? Or will they sell him out, just like they did Joseph? So the search is conducted from eldest to youngest, I suppose, just for the sake of dramatic tension. Because the steward obviously knows whose bag he's going to find the cup in, because he put it in the youngest brother's cup. So he says, okay, line up by age order, and we're going to start with the oldest. And one by one, by one, by one, by one, all the way down the line of these 11 brothers until finally Benjamin opens his sack and the cup 
is found. And they tear their clothes and return to the city. The tearing of clothes, of course, is a common sign of grief and mourning. Presumably here they're grieving the inevitable loss of their youngest brother, who will now be sentenced certainly to remain in Egypt as a slave or perhaps killed. The steward said he'd be the slave, but it's probably not beyond their imagination that actually they might treat him even more harshly than that. And also note here, just given the circumstance, the other ten must assume that Benjamin is actually guilty. By this point, when they've looked through all the sacks and Benjamin has been found with the silver cup, they must assume, what are you doing? We, put, we risk our necks for you. We drug you along with us because this governor insisted that you be here and all you had to do was behave yourself and you had to steal from him? They have to assume that Benjamin is guilty because he looks guilty. The cup is in his bag. So just bear that in mind, that the brothers must be assuming Benjamin's guilt as well as grieving over the obvious consequences to come. And they have the trip back to the city to think and to wonder. So Benjamin will surely become a slave in Egypt. Surely he deserves these consequences since it seems he has audaciously violated the hospitality of this royal Egyptian house. But if you remember that Judah pledged himself to his father for Benjamin's safety, Judah is probably now thinking, what am I going to do? This is going to be on me, isn't it? Judah himself would have to return home without Benjamin after having promised his father to hold him responsible if Benjamin did not return safely. What will he do? Let's look at verses 14 to 17. And I want you to notice the second word in this verse. When Judah and his brothers. The rest of this chapter is Judah's story. He takes sitter stage. He's at the front now. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground yet again. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, excuse me, Both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he, that's Joseph, said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So Judah is explicitly foregrounded here. He is now, before our eyes, becoming the leader among his brothers that God has always intended him to be. And so Judah, now the spokesperson for the group, speaks up on their behalf, and he offers no defense. We are guilty. 
is essentially his message. How can we clear ourselves? What can we say? There is no argument to be made here. And then he doesn't just say, you have figured out that we're guilty. He says, God has found out our guilt. See, Judah recognizes there's something beyond this, the power of this royal Egyptian wizard. There's a power much higher than any of these earthly powers, and that's the power that's at work here. He has seen our guilt from the beginning. We heard the brothers arguing among themselves last week about this. Right? We, are, we are guilty, and that's why the blood of our brother, and that's why all this distress has come upon us. Right? And so now Judah is saying, God has found out our guilt. There's nothing we can do. We can't escape it. We can't argue with it. We can't defend ourselves. We are guilty. Both immediately in this instance where it seems that Benjamin, the the youngest, has indeed stolen from the governor and in the broader sense of their long-standing guilt for the sins that they've committed against Joseph and their father for some 22 years now. In other words, this is justice. He recognizes it is right for us to be punished for our wrongdoings. And so Judah offers for all the brothers to remain as slaves. Again, going back to his original idea, or what the brothers collectively had spoken to the steward, whoever whoever has the cup will be killed and the rest of us will be slaves. And the steward said, no, 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 just the one who has the cup will be a slave. Well, Judah now says, we will all be your slaves, including the brother in whose hand the cup was found and all the rest of us. So clearly looking for mercy for Benjamin's sake, right? Because he doesn't say, kill him. He says, we'll all become your slaves. We'll, We'll just be servants. So he's looking for mercy, but he's also offering solidarity. We all will remain in Egypt and be slaves to you. And Joseph won't have it, because that's not Joseph's test. That's not the plan. He says, no, far be it from me. In other words, it would be unjust of me to punish all of you for the wrongdoing of just one. So he will remain in Egypt, and the rest of you will go up in peace, he says to your father. Of course, he knows full well there will be no peace in their return. They will return with devastating news for their father that Benjamin has been enslaved in Egypt. And here is the moment that this whole silver cup test has been building up to. This is the scenario that Joseph envisioned back when he had the steward put the cup in Benjamin's sack. Also note, I don't think I mentioned this last week or drew it out very well, but he has clearly given the youngest brother preferential treatment in the sight of all the other brothers. When they were feasting together, we were told at the end of chapter 43 that he gave uh, the youngest one five times the portion of any of the other brothers. So all of this is obviously a part of this plan that Joseph has to, to show preferential treatment to the youngest brother and then put that youngest brother on the hook for having done something incredibly stupid that actually lands them all in trouble, and then see how they respond. Will they sell out their brother 
just like they sold me out to gain position for themselves. And so he has set this scene for his brothers to show the same disdain for Benjamin that they showed to Joseph 22 years earlier, and to be furious with Benjamin for apparently stealing from him and landing them in trouble. Now, Joseph probably has no actual intention to keep Benjamin as a slave and to release the others. So he must be testing him precisely on this point. Will you be satisfied yet again to deliver up one of your brothers, namely the youngest and favored one, for the sake of your own skins? Well, we know exactly how chapter 38 Judah would have responded to that offer, don't we? But this is chapter 44, and we may not be dealing with the same Judah. <clears throat> the rest of this chapter is Judah's speech to Joseph. He takes him in private and pleads his case to the governor of Egypt. So verses 18 through 34 are this one speech by Judah. I'm going to read verses 18 through 29 first, and we'll pause, because the crux of it, the real point of it is in those last few verses, and I want to pause before we get to that. So let's look together at verses 18 through 29, which is largely a recap, probably for Joseph's benefit, assuming he might not remember all of his dealings with them over the months. <clears throat> so he addresses the governor in private, beginning in verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Remember, because he had said, if something happens to Benjamin, you will send my gray hairs down to Sheol. Right? Verse 23, then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Okay, we're going to pause right there before we get to the last paragraph of Judah's speech. So he's taken Joseph aside to address him in private, perhaps not wanting to embarrass the rest of the brothers, perhaps hoping to gain some favor with him in a, in a more private conversation, and he recounts the story so far, right? You asked if we had a father or another brother. We told you our father was still living and our youngest brother remained home and all of that, right? So he tells him this, this whole thing. Now, there's a detail in what he shares that would have been new to Joseph. When he tells him that, uh, that their father had said, I had two sons from, from my wife and one of them 
was torn to pieces. That would be the first time that Joseph knows what his father thinks had happened. So Joseph is learning. So for these 22 years, my father has believed that I was killed by some wild animal, and he never saw me again. That's, that's an interesting just sort of human drama note that that factors into what's in Joseph's mind and heart in the course of this conversation. Well, he's sort of told the story so far, and now he's going to make a plea. He is going to ask Joseph a specific request. And in these few verses, we will see Judah stand up to his full height for the first time. Let's read verses 30 through 34. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Thank you. For your servant, now he's speaking about himself, for your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is not the same Judah. This is not chapter 38 Judah, is it? He explains his predicament. If I return home without my youngest brother, our father will die from grief. His life is bound up in the boy's life, he said. And, and he tells Joseph, I promised my own life in exchange. I promised my father that I would bring him safely home or I would bear the blame forever. And so then he cuts to the chase, take me instead and send him home with the others. Keep me as your slave and send the others home. And he shows kind regard for his father here for maybe the first time that we've actually seen. I fear to see the evil that would find my father if Benjamin doesn't go home. Well, Judah has finally become the leader among his brothers that God has always intended him to be. This is where I want to camp out for a little bit in the last few minutes that we have together. You know, Judah's been through some stuff to become the version of himself that we see at the end of chapter 44. Judah's story in these chapters is not all pretty. In fact, the first several chapters that Judah is uh, an active character, it's downright ugly. He's selfish and hypocritical and immoral and not concerned about his family. There's just a totally, a totally sinful, rebellious, self-interested man in the first few chapters of this story. But that's not the, the Judah that we see anymore. That's not the Judah that we find in chapter 44. And the things he's been through are some suffering and hardship that have come upon him that he had no control over, like years of famine. 
But a lot of it is the result of his own choices and his own sins and the consequences of his behavior. And so he has suffered at the hands of providence as God has, has returned sort of the, the fruit of what he has sown. And I think that's a good reminder for all of us that our school of preparation for whatever it is that the Lord is building into us is never just informational. It's never just if I had a few more pieces of knowledge, I would be equipped to be a better leader or a better husband or a better brother or a better father or a better citizen or whatever. It's never just information. It's always experiential. And it's usually not all good experiences. It often involves our own sin and their consequences and the adversity that befalls us by his wise providence just by virtue of the fact that we live in a fallen world. And so Judah is poised to step forward as the sacrificial servant leader among the family in chapter 44, precisely because of the Judah that we saw in chapters 37 and 38 and 43. In fact, to flesh this out, I've actually created a chart. Every few months, I give you an image up here, all right? Uh, so enjoy it when you, when you get it. We got chapter 38 Judah and chapter 44 Judah. These are different, different guys, all right? Different guys. First of all, in chapter 38, actually technically 37, but bear with me, he comes up with a plan to sell Joseph as a slave. It's actually not on the chart, but he had previously participated in the violence against him among all the other brothers where they took his robe and threw him in a pit. But now, remember, it's Judah who had the bright idea to sell him. He saw some Ishmaelite traders coming, and he said, hey, we could make some money. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him. That was Judah's bright idea. He participates in the cruel deception of his father. After Joseph has been sold, and they return to him with this robe that they've dipped in the blood of a goat, and they present it to their father and say, please identify whether this robe belongs to your son. So they have intentionally deceived their father into believing that Joseph has been killed by a wild animal. Judah is right there in the mix, right there among them when all that is happening. At the beginning of chapter 38, we see Judah disregarding the covenant community. Said he turned aside and he went and allied himself with certain Canaanites and married a Canaanite woman and and on and on it goes. And so he shows a disdain for the people of God. Doesn't seem to care that he's in the line of, of Abraham's family, this, this, this line of promise. He shows disregard for the covenant community. He selfishly keeps back his son from Tamar. Remember, his first son had married a Canaanite woman named Tamar, and God put his son to death because he was wicked. And so then he gave him his next son uh, to fulfill the, the vow of leveret marriage. And God put him to death, too, because he was also wicked. And so the third son of Judah that he should have given in marriage to Tamar for her protection and provision, he held him back. I am not going to see what happens to son number three if I put him in that same situation. And so he selfishly keeps back his son from Tamar. And secondarily, on top of that, deceives her into believing that he's going to give her his son sometime down the road. He's just too young. Let him grow up a little bit, and then I'll give him to you, with no intention whatsoever of actually giving his son to her. Then 
He indulges in fleshly lust by visiting a cult prostitute, or what he thinks is a cult prostitute. Of course, remember, it's actually Tamar in disguise. But he is on his way to trade and is distracted by the presence of a harlot and can't help himself, and so he visits her, sowing his lack of self-control and this immorality. And then the final thing in our chart is that he then hypocritically demands the stoning of Tamar. When she is found to be pregnant, someone brings her forward, and he says, Who, let's, let's stone her. Bring her out to the, public, the town square and let's stone her because she's committed adultery. Of course, knowing all the while that he had visited a prostitute or what he thought was a prostitute. And the ending of that story was Tamar identifying Judah as the one. And he said at that point, she is more righteous than I. So that's not a pretty chart, right? That, that side of the chart, that chapter 38 Judah is pretty ugly stuff. This is deep, dark, messed up, sinful, immoral behavior. And it's behavior that stems from deep, dark, messed up, immoral character, clearly. But let's look at Judah in the latter part of the story. This chapter 44, Judah. Last week we saw that Judah pledged himself for Benjamin's safety. So again, technically chapter 43, chapter 43, verse 9, he said to Jacob, send Benjamin with me, I will pledge to you that he will return safely or I bear the blame forever. So he's taking responsibility there. He grieves, along with the other brothers, over Benjamin's apparent guilt. When they find out that, that Benjamin has the cup in his sack, they tear their clothes in grief and in mourning. And Judah clearly is participating in that as well. So he's, he, his heart is rent by this action on the part of his brother. He plainly acknowledges his guilt before God. This might be the most important one on the list. What, what can I say? I have no defense. God has found out our guilt. There's no argument to make. I am guilty. He assumes bold leadership among his brothers, becoming their spokesperson when they're all together, and then even taking the, the perhaps audacious step of pulling the governor aside for a private conversation. He, he, takes, he claims leadership among the brothers. Shows concern for his father and his brothers. I, fe I fear the evil that would find my father if I were to return home without him. He's clearly concerned about Benjamin's well-being. He's clearly concerned about all the others. Just take me and send them all home. So as opposed to the disregard that he had previously shown for the covenant family, he is concerned for them. He is actually putting himself forward for the sake of their well-being. And that leads us to the next one. He offers himself as a sacrifice in Benjamin's place. That's not something chapter 38 Judah would have done. And in doing so, he keeps his word to his father. He told him, right, I will bring him home safely or I will bear the blame forever. Well, here he's found himself in a situation where the only way for Benjamin to get back safely is for me to bear the blame literally for something Benjamin did, apparently, right? We know that Benjamin didn't actually steal the cup. But in Judah's mind, when he's offering this, he must be assuming that Benjamin is guilty of this crime. 
So he's not offering himself for an innocent, unjustly accused person. To his understanding, he's offering himself for his brother that stole from the governor. Put it on me. And in doing that, he keeps his word to his father. I hope that chart encourages you. I'm guessing there are some chapter 38 Judas in here. Or there's some people who have been chapter 38 Judas who look at that left side of the chart and go, praise God for his ridiculous grace. If there's a chapter 38 Judah in the room, don't get stuck. Don't stay put. Don't throw up your hands in defeat. This will never get better. I can never change. I can never grow. This is just who I am. Chapter 44 Judah says that's not true. Chapter, who is the chapter 44 Judah that God is preparing you to become? And what will it take to see that transformation take place? How might God use your life experiences, even your sins and their consequences, to shape godly character in you? Well, while Judah is clearly portrayed as a hero for his brothers in this chapter, he even more effectively points us to another greater hero, the Lord Jesus Christ. Judah offers himself in the place of his younger brother as a sacrifice for his freedom. Judah's life in exchange for Benjamin's. Christ our older brother stands in for us in our guilt, offering himself as a sacrifice for our freedom, Jesus' life in exchange for ours. One commentator says, Judah's redemption has followed an amazing trajectory. He began as the prototype of Judas selling his brother for silver and ends up as a type, that is a picture, of Christ by taking upon himself the sin of another. And that's not just an amazing transformation for Judah. That is the, the symbol of an amazing gospel of grace, whereby Jesus stands in the place of his sinful people and bears their guilt. And so Judah's willing self-sacrifice on behalf of his brother both pictures for us Christ's sacrifice for the sins of his people, and it points us to the only means by which we may ourselves experience the kind of life transformation that we see in Judah. Because chapter 38 Judas don't become chapter 44 Judas without the grace of God poured out through Christ in his gospel. When sinners draw near to God in humble repentance and acknowledge their guilt, and plead for mercy on the ground of Jesus and Jesus alone. Sinners and God are reconciled. And those who once had chapter 38 kinds of character deficiencies and desires begin to change. And those desires take new shape. And they begin to live not for themselves and their own lusts, but for God and his righteousness. That's a miracle of grace. 
We all need this miracle. Because without it, without the grace of Christ in the gospel, every one of us is a chapter 38 Judah, and there's no hope of getting off of that side of the chart. But because of Christ, chapter 44 can be your story too. Let's pray.